Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we awaken weird and wonderful science in your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special edition, I tell the story of the sleeping dragons of different kinds of herpes viruses hiding in our bodies along our nervous system and how they can be awakened by infection by a different virus, like SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19. COVID awakens herpes viruses. Long COVID, like many other illnesses, may be caused by sleeping herpes viruses that are woken by a serious viral infection. A herpes virus researcher I follow on Twitter posted this information about herpes viruses and their connection to long COVID. Unfortunately, they weren't available to be interviewed and considered the information so obvious that they didn't want to be credited either. I think it's important and interesting enough that I have to share it with you. I've taken their words and all their references to scientific papers from their several Twitter threads and adapted them for audio. Long COVID is defined as symptoms that persist for months or years after a COVID infection. Common signs and symptoms that linger over time include fatigue, shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, coughs, joint pain, chest pain, memory and concentration problems, often known as brain fog, sleep problems, muscle pain or headaches, fast or a pounding heartbeat, a loss of smell or taste, depression or anxiety, fever, dizziness when you stand, and worsened symptoms after physical or mental exertion. If, like me, you suffer from other post-viral conditions such as myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or fibromyalgia, then these symptoms will sound all too familiar. Herpes viruses are named for the Greek word herpian, to creep, due to how their sores and blisters move along the paths of infected nerves. There are 130 known herpes viruses, of which only 9 infect humans. Over 90% of all humans are infected with at least one of these 9 viruses. In the United States, half of all humans get human gamma herpes virus, Epstein-Barr, mononucleosis or the kissing disease, by the time they're five years old. 90% of people have the virus by adulthood. In Australia, Epstein-Barr virus is known as glandular fever. 47% of adults have herpes simplex 1. Human beta herpes virus 5, cytomegalovirus, also called glandular fever in Australia, 60% of people have it by age 6, 90% by age 80. And of course, chickenpox is caused by the varicella zoster herpes virus, which can return as shingles later in life. All these infections are permanent. You almost certainly have one herpes virus. There's a very high chance you have three. You've probably had them since you were a toddler, and you'll have them till the day you die. During the decades in between, they'll evade your immune system inside nerves, subtly increasing your chance of cancers, 
subtly increasing by as yet not fully understood means the chances of diseases from Alzheimer's to irritable bowel syndrome to diabetes. These herpeviruses, which you almost certainly have in your nerves right now, will affect your health the rest of your life, even if you never see a sore or blister again. If you ever get a cancer, there's a good chance one of the several herpes viruses you have helped make it more likely. Its hand will subtly leave its marks on your health for the rest of your life. Herpes is ubiquitous, permanent and patient. Herpes viruses are what every virus wants to be when they grow up. My Twitter researcher's absolute favourite virus, Monkey Virus B, is a herpes virus. Another of their favourite viruses is Human Herpes Virus 6. It accounts for 20% of all infant hospitalizations for fever in the United States. It's spread by saliva. It helps cause Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis. And it activates other herpes viruses. Human herpes virus 6, which basically 100% of all Americans are exposed to by the time they're adults, is also implicated in myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. It seems to wait till another virus hammers the immune system, then lends a hand in the resulting symptoms. It's a virus that causes potentially neurologically damaging fevers in infants, which then hangs around, ready to help mess up the nervous system for the rest of the person's life. It's not flashy, it's not very deadly, it's not a sexy virus, it's merely everywhere and extremely patient. That's one of the amazing things about herpes viruses, their patience. Very rarely are their effects loud and immediate. They can hang around for 50 years before ruining your day in a way so subtle it's hard to figure out they were even responsible. Their diseases, the primary danger of which isn't that they're going to kill you, but that you'll spend the rest of your life feeling their effects in ways mostly subtle, but sometimes in bowel-loosingly terrifying ways. And afterwards, when the cancer appears, or after you go senile or lose motor function, they'll make direct eye contact and go, What, me? I wasn't doing anything. A considerable part of what people refer to as long COVID is actually their dormant herpes viruses reactivating after their immune system gets hammered. This is not unique to COVID. Herpes viruses flare in the wake of any serious viral infection. Since basically everyone has multiple herpes viruses, which are both mild and endemic in the strictest definitions of that term, basically everyone is one good viral infection from them waking up to party. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. A multi-systemic viral infection with neurological, cardiovascular and autoimmune components hits you. The herpes virus you definitely have will take that opportunity to wake up. I'm not exaggerating. In June 2021, the paper COVID-19 Pandemic as a Risk Factor for the Reactivation of Herpes Viruses was published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Infection. One of the autoimmune disorders herpes viruses can cause is inflammatory bowel disease. 
When COVID reactivates the cytomegalovirus you almost certainly have, you can get new and exciting gastrointestinal problems. The impact of human herpes viruses in clinical practice of inflammatory bowel disease in the era of COVID-19 was published in the journal Microorganisms. The herpes viruses you almost certainly have had, and which you will have until the day you die, can wait patiently until your immune system is hit hard enough for them to wake up. Over 800,000 Americans have died of just such a disease. COVID-19 reactivates the herpes viruses you definitely have. Long COVID is partially reactivated herpes viruses waking up and getting loud. Herpes virus reactivation during severe COVID-19 and high rate of immune defect was published in the journal Infectious Diseases Now. Herpes viruses, even before the pandemic, can influence health in ways so subtle it's hard to identify. Did Epstein-Barr virus cause this cancer? That rheumatoid arthritis? This multiple sclerosis? This case of cerebral palsy? And so on. Disentangling the herpes parts of long COVID will be tricky. One of the main causes of the birth complication that causes cerebral palsy is herpivirus infection. It triples the risk of birth asphyxia occurring. Cerebral palsy is the most common movement disorder in children. It affected 1 in 500 before the pandemic. It's predicted to become more common as long COVID complicates childbirth. In the wake of a multisystemic illness with cardiovascular and autoimmune components, which themselves will increase birth complications, reactivated herpes viruses will add more birth complications. Herpes virus 6 probably had a hand in causing type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease. Humans' herpes virus 6 is present at higher levels in the pancreatic tissues of donors with type 1 diabetes, was published in the Journal of Autoimmunity. Even before the pandemic, people were alarmed that being in the intensive care unit has a strong chance of reactivating dormant herpes viruses. Immunosuppression and herpes viral reactivation in intensive care unit patients, one size does not fit all, was published in the journal Critical Care. You almost certainly have at least one herpes virus in you which is just waiting for your immune system to take a hit. Almost everyone has this ticking time bomb waiting for COVID to wake it up. Myalgic encephalomyelitis, better known as chronic fatigue syndrome, is an autoimmune disorder. It occurs in the wake of almost any serious viral infection. One reason is that these viral infections wake up dormant gamma herpes virus 4, Epstein-Barr virus. A considerable part of what people refer to as long COVID is actually their dormant herpes viruses reactivating after their immune system gets hammered. This is not unique to COVID. Following a severe viral infection, whether influenza or COVID or such, Epstein-Barr antigens are found to increase. The virus reactivates. Myalgic encephalomyelitis occurs four times more often in women than men after a viral infection. The dormant Epstein-Barr virus, which 90% of all Americans have by adulthood, can wake up following the shock to the immune system caused by a viral infection. It can then add its own autoimmune havoc to the symptoms of that viral infection. Disentangling which parts of the resulting myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome are caused by that initial viral infection, and which are caused by Epstein-Barr virus reactivating in its wake, will be tricky. Herpes viruses are subtle and patient and can do 
shockingly unexpected things. It'll take decades. Basically, everyone has Epstein-Barr virus, and at least one other herpes virus. They've had them since they were kids, and they'll have them until the day they die. And those herpes viruses patiently wait till another virus messes up the immune system enough for them to wake up. A let-it-rip strategy that catastrophically messes up understanding what endemic means ensures that the actually endemic and ubiquitous herpes viruses are allowed to reactivate en masse. You have at least three viruses in you which are mild and endemic. They are herpes viruses. These endemic viruses and their friends will wait patiently until another viral infection gives them an opportunity to reactivate, and then they'll add to your post-viral symptoms. They'll join in on the post-viral symptoms in ways both subtle and terrifyingly unexpected. From rheumatoid arthritis, to chronic fatigue syndrome, to cancer, to multiple sclerosis, to irritable bowel syndrome, to lupus, they'll add their voices to the mix. This is one of the many reasons you do not want COVID to go endemic. Because you almost certainly have three endemic mild viruses already inside you, just absolutely itching for COVID to give them their time to shine. You almost certainly have gamma herpes virus 4 in you. You don't want it to wake up. COVID wakes it up. Chronic fatigue syndrome, a critical appraisal of the role of Epstein-Barr virus, was published in the Western Journal of Medicine. Because the American Centre for Disease Control Strategy and the Australian Federal Government, Queensland State Government and New South Wales State Government strategies are obviously let it rip, and this ensures constant reinfections, the messed up misunderstanding of endemic means constant reactivation. Herpes viruses are reactivating at least once a year with each new wave of reinfection. In normal times, your Epstein-Barr virus would be dormant for years, decades, between viral infections which wake it up. The utter failure that is the American Centre for Disease Controls and the Australian Government's public health policy to encourage spread means this will happen on a timeline of months instead. You do not want to have a multi-systemic virus with an immune component repeatedly reactivating dormant herpes viruses several times a year. This is not a good thing for anybody. Picture a positive feedback loop of autoimmune disorders hammering people with each seasonal wave. That is what absolute failure in public health policy looks like. Two-thirds of long COVID patients had reactivated Epstein-Barr virus in their systems versus only 10% of people without long COVID. Similar elevated levels of Epstein-Barr virus were found during acute COVID infection. Investigation of long COVID prevalence and its relationship to Epstein-Barr virus reactivation was published in the journal Pathogens. 30.8% of subjects who had asymptomatic COVID developed long COVID symptoms. That's nearly a third of people who didn't show any symptoms, who still tested positive for COVID infection, went on to develop long COVID symptoms. Multiple studies found Epstein-Barr virus reactivation in the vast majority of people hospitalised for COVID. Higher levels in almost everyone who experienced respiratory failure. 
reactivated Epstein-Barr virus was especially likely to be found in patients experiencing long COVID symptoms of the skin, as well as COVID toes, which is basically Raynaud syndrome, where instead of your circulation increasing when your extremities are cold, it decreases. So cold toes and fingers get colder, even when you cover them with socks and gloves. Epstein-Barr virus reactivation may occur soon after or concomitantly with COVID-19 infection, including after initially asymptomatic infections. COVID wakes up your Epstein-Barr virus while and after you have it, even if it's asymptomatic. Thus, it's worth considering that a portion of long COVID symptoms may be the result of COVID-19 inflammation-induced Epstein-Barr virus reactivation. And when your Epstein-Barr virus wakes up, it adds its own effects to the mix of symptoms we call long COVID. The herpes viruses sleeping in our nerve cells get woken up to cause chronic fatigue syndrome or other diseases only when you get hit by a big, nasty viral infection. Which, unless you're very unlucky, used to be once every few decades. COVID-19 now reinfects people every few months. And each reinfection, even if there's no symptoms, can wake up their latent herpes viruses and make them very, very sick. This is a large part of long COVID. This means that the effects of reactivating our herpes viruses every few months could be very severe for us as individuals and for the world. Hopefully, the research into myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, massively underfunded, abused, denied and ignored for decades, will come to our rescue. In 2018, I spoke by Skype with Associate Professor Brett Lidbury at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health in the Research School of Population Health in the Australian National University in Canberra. As part of a larger two-part interview, I asked him about his research into biomarkers for a blood test to diagnose myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. The biomarker's been very, very elusive. Uh, 20, early 2017, we did publish a paper involving ourselves in Canberra, but also colleagues in Melbourne, but David DeCretz and Mark Edger. And we were also involved with the Akita and others from Paranda Biosciences. It's all in the, the publication. And to Together we published on the active and family of proteins, which a type of protein called a cytokine. So it's sort of a molecule in our body which tells tissues and cells what to do and when to do it. And I think, if my memory is correct, they, they were, I think, originally located or identified as a protein involved with uh, reproduction. But what's come to the fore is that these proteins are very what we call pleomorphic. So they, they've got lots and lots of functions. You know, they, they, they don't just work in reproductive context, but also in in muscle, immune cells. And, and so from that point of view, it, it does, given the type of disease ME is and the broad range of symptoms, it does from that very, very basic and very macro point of view, suggests that it might be a good biomarker. So here comes the, the bit where we've got to be the doubting Thomas, scientist, is that, yes, we have shown very clearly in our preliminary study that serum activin B, so there's activin A, activin B, and there's a binding protein called folostatin. And uh, my colleagues at the Hudson Institute in Melbourne, where Mark Hedger works and runs the team, we can see a, a, a quite a clear and significant elevation of activin B in people who fulfilled the international criteria for a diagnosis of MECFS. 
Right, because from what I've been reading, a lot of the observations people are making are there seems to be inflammation and there seems to be a lot of activity in the immune system and things going wrong in the central nervous system and the brain. And yes. So can we link that to what's causing these biomarkers? In general, yes. I mean, inflammation is often an issue almost with any disease. Um, there's some inflammatory loss of balance. So the way people are thinking of it now is with the neurological aspects, of course, you've got what's called the blood-brain blood brain barrier. So not everything can get in and out. But we've also got in our brains types of what are called macrophages, which live in the brain and can be prone to activation under certain conditions. I've seen no evidence for it myself, not to say that there isn't any, but basically to answer your question, yes, those sorts of things, that inflammatory process in some part of the body, if out of control or not controlled properly, could actually influence how the cells in the brain respond. And of course then, if it's an abnormal response impact or function, you know, that of course involves the brain, as you, as you suggest. And then with what triggers people to get into ME or CFS, it seems to be that it's not the same for everybody, that some people get exposed maybe to viruses or maybe to toxins in the environment, or we're just not really sure? Yes. I think it's better than speculation, but the, the sense among the experts, people that really know the area, I work closely as a clinical colleague with Don Lewis, who runs a clinic in East Melbourne in Donvale. And he's been looking at patients for a long time uh, with MECFS, and his view is that it's something like an infection, heavy metal contamination, undue stress, you know, something that maybe comes from more to do with cortisol or stress responses. I alluded to earlier that the viral outbreaks, I think, yeah, for some people, in contact with a, a virus and viral persistence does explain it, whereas heavy metals with others. And in fact, some of the early reports when people had a bit of an idea that they were dealing with a, a syndrome or a disease, there was often talk about patients who would come in and say, look, I had a cold last year, which I'd normally recover from, but this time I just didn't recover. Mm. <laughs> you know, I got the infection. I normally get better, but this time I just felt sick, you know, basically forevermore after that infection. So it's like a cold or, a, you know, some sort of respiratory type infection, for example, that just doesn't go away or ameliorate. So... What, what we can say is, you know, there is some evidence uh, to suggest that, but you're quite right. While the clinical manifestations uh, have some, you know, share some similarity, of course, the core ones are the fatigue for six months or more, although I believe some people are starting to say three months or more, but let's say three to six months or longer. And the big one that we've seen is, of course, what's called payback. So, you know, it's also technically called post-exertional malaise or lethargy. People with those things, you know, as a, as a centerpiece of symptoms can then have a variety of other symptoms around that. Some people might have more mu muscle pain, some more neurological symptoms, other more gut symptoms or some combination. And we're interested in actually trying to sift through that a bit better and try and make, you know, I suppose some better support rules or clinical decision making rules around, you know, what to really look for. So you've got all that. And of course, as you suggest, that lends itself to what we call a different etiology. So... It might manifest in a certain way clinically, but what kicks that off initially in, in a way that we can't see, that is a virus or whatever, I'm sure is quite diverse. And then, of course, you've got controversy about what to do to treat people once you've identified that they have ME-CFS. 
as far as I know, and I should should say that I'm a, a clinical scientist. I'm not actually a, a medical practitioner, so I don't treat. I'm very involved in the diagnostic side of it. But from what I can glean, well, there are recommendations currently uh, involving graded exercise therapy and uh, CBT. But the evidence, from my reading of it anyway, seems to be growing in terms of saying that's not effective for the majority of people. I believe there has been some evidence say that for a small subpopulation it might help, but generally it's either no effect or it can actually be more harmful. So people saying, look, this isn't good enough, we've got to think differently. And beyond that, there are anecdotally stories that suggest that for some patients, you know, some sort of multivitamin complex or you know, some uh, low-dose beta blocker or, you know, some other range of things, you know, do help or taking your cults, you know, restoring your gut microbiota. There's probably quite a bit of self-medicating going on, but we don't actually have really uh, beyond the exercise therapies and things which are falling into disrepute to some level. We don't really have anything else beyond what maybe an individual uh, medical practitioner or even a patient might decide to do to help with the symptoms. I'll put a link to the full two-part interview with Associate Professor Brett Libbery on the show notes page. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusion radio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. 
and in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.